0: and this is The Essence of Cool. On today's show, we talk to Jerry Young, owner of Canadian independent record label and management company Current Records. Jerry's journey in the music business started at the tender age of 20 when he hired master bluesman Johnny Winter and legendary rockers The Kinks to play his university. Later, he was hired by iconic record label Polygram in the roles of promotion manager and A&R consultant and became the Canadian liaison for such monster acts as Frank Zappa, Kiss, Peter Gabriel, and the Bee Gees. Under his own label, Current Records, he signed two Juno award-winning artists, Martha and the Muffins, and the Parachute Club. His label also signed Vancouver's Strange Advance, Molly Johnson and Altamoda, and Boomtown Rats guitarist Jerry Cott. On today's show, he makes his case for why Frank Zappa and the Kinks are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Jerry Young, welcome to the essence of cool. My pleasure, Bernard. This is very cool because uh, I course been a big fan of your book and the name of that book is pop goes the weasel rock and roll off the record by jerry young a fantastic book with lots of great anecdotes about uh, your many experiences uh, as a record exec and even prior as a as a tv exec which is interesting because uh, i was also a tv writer producer uh, at ctv for many years so. i did not know that Before we get into the people you've chosen, I want to get started by getting a little bit of background on you. I I didn't know this, but you and I grew up in kind of the same neck of the woods in Toronto, in Etobicoke. Um, Yeah, Although we're of of different generations. Um, But I'm curious, you went to Michael Power, right? And I had lots of friends who went to Michael Power.
1: Yeah, I've been twice there and uh, I guess that's my legacy at Michael Power.
0: First of all, how much did school affect your musical Tastes and what were you listening to uh, around that time during your teenage years?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, music's really all all that I've known in my life is in terms of something I enjoy and, and something I, I've worked at. Uh, when I was eight years old, I was uh, uh, auditioned for a, a music school in Toronto called Saint Michael's Choir School, which at that time had. Groups like the Four Lads wow. uh, on, on the charts in the states, uh, where, as their uh, sort of their alumni, and uh, also, of course, uh, later on, one of my classmates was Joy Chorowski of the band the Mandela,
0: right.
1: uh, who, of course, had hit with Opportunity back in 1967. Um, uh, so, I, I ever since eight, I've been eight years old, I, I, I was I went to music school and took music classes and choral and piano and all that stuff and sang at Masses every Sunday at St. Michael's Cathedral. Um, so I did that until I was about 14, and then I decided I had to get out of that environment uh, and go to a normal school, which I thought Michael Power was at that time, but frankly, it was just a strict Catholic high school. And uh, I managed to fail there twice, but of course, the reason I failed was uh, music. I was hooked. It was the early 60s, and, of course, the, Be- the the British Invasion was starting at that time with bands like, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones, obviously, the Beatles, obviously, uh, and other bands that I liked, like the Spencer Davis Group and even the Kinks. Right. And uh, with the first hit, You Really Got Me, which blew me away. Yeah. So I was failing high school, but I was learning a lot about music. Right. And uh, uh, by the time I was about 18, I, I guess I... Uh, Uh, moved on to the University of Ottawa, Uh, eventually, (laughs) I guess I was a bit older than that, maybe 19 or 20, and uh, I failed, again, out of the University of Ottawa. But I'd written a great play at that time, a little one-act play called The Circus, that I put on with some fellow students at the University of Ottawa, Uh, and this uh, drama guild at the University of Ottawa had picked it up and decided to do it as a full-blown production and take it on tour. Wow. Uh, it won a couple of awards at, uh, the Canadian, um, uh, student drama festival in Kitchener and it, uh, then toured and went to the Tyrone Guthrie theater in Minneapolis where it was performed. And then, um, uh, actually it, it was taken to the Yale drama festival, student drama festival at Yale university. And, uh, of course, it was panned by uh, the uh, lead writer for the <laughs> New York Times, uh, but it was quite an experience for me to have my play uh, performed at Yale University. So I was quite thrilled about that.
0: That's amazing.
1: Um, uh, moving on, the next year, after I failed, I wasn't planning to go back to school. Uh, I figured I'd written a play, I'd become a writer. Right. Uh, I was talked out of that, however, when um, uh, Father O'Brien, uh, who was heading up uh, uh, Loyola College at that time, and they had a new uh, course called the Communication Arts Department. And, of course, Loyola College was part of the University of Montreal at that point, an uh, English college. Um, and he thought, because I'd written this play that he'd heard about, that I would, despite the fact I'd failed university and shouldn't be allowed back to another university for at least a year... <laughs> Uh, he, he accepted me and um, said, you know, I'll, I'll take you in. What do you really like? And uh, Tell me about yourself. And so I told him. and He saw that I was uh, somebody who maybe needed a bit of direction. So he, he said, yeah, come on to the school here and uh, get involved in television and all this stuff. So that's what I did. And uh, I met uh, a lot of great friends and classmates, uh, Jean-Marie Heinrath, who I later worked with at Polygram Records. Uh, he hired me five years after university, after I'd been in television, to come and work in the record
0: business. Yeah, wow. and,
1: uh, and so it was really quite a, quite a strange experience.
0: But what is your definition of cool?
1: Uh, I would think uh, my definition of cool would be somebody who would uh, continue on with what they like to do for as long as possible they could earn a living at it. Mm. Um, And uh, for that matter, it gave him enjoyment, which is obviously, I think, the purpose of life, to try and enjoy yourself throughout life and try and make others happy. So for that understanding, uh, somebody like who's been around a long time and who's actually, you know, done a lot of work during that period, uh, that's cool to me.
0: Which leads us to the first band you chose, The Kinks. Um, and you, you have no argument f- from me whatsoever about uh, them being the essence of cool. Now, you met them, uh, you hired them while you're at university. You you decide that you uh, want to jump into uh, pro- promoting rock acts at the school, and I guess your first attempt was to bring J- the Johnny Winter group on, which I, I guess was a huge success, but you didn't make any money?
1: Well, we, we, we didn't make any money. We sold out uh, Place des Arts in Montreal, right. um, and I brought them in as a student because the student council said, hey, Jerry, uh, we understand, uh, this is a student council at Loyola, we understand that last year uh, you had a great play, so you must know people in the entertainment business. <laughs> With that, they gave me money to go to New York and find a band. So I went to New York and I went to New York and uh, uh, I you know, went to all the agencies, booking agencies uh, as a student promoter of, you know, 20 years old. And uh, then uh, uh, at that time they said, well, here are the bands and here are their prices. And I had a budget that could pay for Johnny Winter and I could book. Class are, I found out obviously before all the papers were signed. So we went and did it and uh, ended up uh, selling out the concert. Um, and uh, the student body, uh, unfortunately, we were supposed to make a lot of money, but we didn't make a lot of money because uh, the kids ripped out the seating in Plastizar, oh. And uh, and uh, that's sort of the damage done. Of course, I wasn't told when I booked the theater that there was insurance I could have bought. So right. I didn't think about it. <laughs> and, of course, you know, there was $3,000 or $5,000 made. But, of course, uh, that all was evaporated except for about four hundred dollars or something. Apparently, there was damage in the washrooms and there was damage in the seats and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And this was the right. Winter show. And nevertheless, the student council said, "Well, you know, you were successful despite that little thing. So uh, why don't you? We're having a winter carnival, and why don't you book us another act and see see what happens?" And we'll book them in the school this time so we won't worry about the damage situation. <laughs> I said, fine. So I went back in New York and uh, I looked down the roster who was available for, you know, 2500 bucks. And uh, they said, uh, that's U.S. And they said, well, you know, here's a band. The Cakes, they're they're coming back to North America. They haven't toured in a number of years. And I found out, of course, they'd had some problems uh, years before on their first tour in 1964 and they weren't allowed back into the States. So they didn't tour the States until the Lola tour, which is when I got them. Right. But fortunately, I booked them about a year before Lola came out. So that I got them for $2,500. Wow. But by the time they were coming to North America that year, that year Lola was, you know, the top 10 in North America. So, right. I mean, they were going for like $7,500, $10,000 a night at that point, which we couldn't have afforded. Now I got them unbelievably because they were a band looking to break into North America so bad at the time I booked them. I got them for two shows for twenty five hundred dollars.
0: Wow. Now,
1: of course, those shows have an opening act. Well, of right. course, I had no money for an opening act, and frankly, I didn't know any real good bands who could play and open for the Kings. Right. But of course, I am a writer. So I figured I'll put on my another play I've written before the <laughs> Another one, and I'll have my friends play the actors. Oh, wow. And for some reason, this this, this went went off, and uh, my friends were all stoned up on stage, but they carried on. Uh, I, and the Kinks were backstage, they, they wanted nothing to do with it, but they played their shows. They were wonderful, um, pot was passed around throughout the auditorium, the two sold-out shows. My play went on twice. My father came, uh, was in town in Montreal for the uh, for a business meeting. So he came to one of the early, came to the early show. With, and my girlfriend, who was sitting with him at the time, said that joints were passed around, they hash joints were passed around throughout the whole performance. And my father would just take it, you know, very lightly, basically and pass it to the next person beside it. So I thought that was rather strange because obviously smoking wasn't, Look well upon at that time.
0: <laughs> right. I, I just <laughs> want to interject for a second, because you're, so you're in New York and you're looking for a band and you find out the kinks are available for this. They will be available
1: for $2,500 right. for two shows.
0: But this is a band who, uh, I mean, maybe Lola hadn't hit at that point, but they'd had huge hits with Victoria, You Really Got Me, All Day and All the Night. I mean, you must have thought you'd hit the jackpot to, to score I, a well, band. I, I, I did think I'd hit the jackpot, and I, and I actually
1: did hit the jackpot on that, on that roll. But I'll tell you something. I found it later, of course, and I've realized later in life, the reason I got them so cheap, and all that stuff, and not only because it was before Lola and all the rest of it and their, or their comeback, but it was a case of that they had a terrible reputation. Uh-huh. Their reputation was hard drinkers. Right. They were fighters. They were rough boys. They were from Munnsville Hill, north of London. I mean, they did not give a shit about much, and... Uh, The promoters were were leery of hiring them back after their first aborted tour in 64. So by the time I booked them five years later, it was a case of that, you know, well, okay, we'll take a chance on them maybe. So any gig that they were offered, they almost would take. So because I was at the first of the line uh, happening on the first line the day that they became available pretty well, yeah, okay, we'll settle the deal. And and, and their schedule fit into the schedule we had for our winter carnival. So it was perfect.
0: Okay. So on the night of uh, their shows, uh, what were they like? Were they, I mean, you, you said they had a history of fighting and uh, tearing, tearing the place apart. Were they true to form, or were they gentlemen, or what were they like?
1: They, they were detached
0: and sullen,
1: <laughs> but... <laughs> Friendly. I mean, you know, they—they—they they, they they didn't seem to converse much or—or or be a friendly bunch of guys. Uh, they had the new new bass, bass player at that by that time, John Taylor, I believe. I forget his name. I think it's John Taylor. I'm not sure. Um, uh, their first bass player had left, so they'd replaced him. But they had Mick Avery on drums, and uh, of course uh, the two Davies brothers, and um, uh, you know. Mick Avery and uh, uh, Ray Davies' brother occasionally got into fist fights, but I saw none of that happening, even though they were there together.
0: Now, the Davies brothers are known for um, not getting along with each other very well. Did, they, did you see any of that?
1: Again, as I say, they were sort of detached from each other and, and sort of sullen. And, and, you know, like they were doing a gig and it was a job and the tour was a job. It, 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 it didn't seem to be any real enjoyment, but they weren't at all, you know, frivolous or anything with their performance. And they, they never uh, had any problems. They never said, hey, I don't see this in my dressing room. Never heard any of that shit. It was all fun. Right. Right.
0: And how did the shows go over?
1: I, I think, Bernard, they were treading very carefully at that point because of their past history.
0: Right. With with the law, right, right, but the, and the shows went off fine. The 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 oh, yeah. the, the uh, audience loved them. And- oh, no, the, the, the it was fabulous. Uh,
1: it, it was one of the best nights of my life. Uh, two sold out shows in, in in my own school, and, yeah. and my play over for both shows. Fantastic.
0: Now, on a whim, you invited them uh, to an after show at a, a hotel suite. You had mentioned that uh, they they actually came, but there was no booze, so they didn't stick around.
1: Well, that, that is true. That is true. They came. They came for about half an hour in the hotel suite. I rented it. It was the Mount Royal right. Hotel, and they came and they were there five minutes. Looked around, saw the booze was almost gone, and said, "That's." And there was lots of dope. And I said, "Do you want do you want some weed?" No. Nope. They left.
0: That was it. Why are they such an important band, do you think? Well, to me,
1: they're an important band uh, because, as I say, their they're first first time I heard you really got me on the radio, I, I mean, I can picture myself in the living room sitting on the floor listening. And I, I just yeah. blew my mind. It was like, wow, this is way better than the Beatles. This is way better than the Rolling Stones. This is happening. So, and the guitar, Dave Davies' guitar was sensational, the crunching guitar. And... Um, so you know the, I, I immediately latched on them at that point and was interested in them and of course later on like booking them became even more interesting but over the years I mean this is a apart from their bad boy persona and, and problems they've had with the you know legally and touring and all the rest of it and fist fights and drunkenness and all the rest of it they put out 24 albums in that time 20 24 excuse me 24. Uh, of the studio albums and four live albums. That's twenty-eight albums yeah. in a career between nineteen sixty-three and nineteen ninety-three. I mean, that's a thirty-year career. And by, I think, by the way, there's are still still—they're still Dave Davies and Ray Davies are talking about putting back together again when this pandemic's over. So it's amazing, despite their problems, the two of them are still together and talking about
0: it incredible eh and i just yeah. in in terms of the number of albums it looks like uh, almost a third of those albums came within the span of 5 6 years in the 70s they were just putting albums out left right and center right eh?
1: i guess after lola but after lola they had a down period where they weren't re- they weren't really taking off in in england i mean in north america anymore so they stopped basically touring in north america on their own volition at that point and stuck to home and and release songs like Waterloo Sunset, which was a, a, a love ode to their hometown of London, and and they they concentrated on Europe and everything else where they maintained their popularity. But the states was never that big for them.
0: What aspect of their music do you think they'll be remembered most for?
1: Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the writing, uh, Ray Davies' writing. I mean, we got hit after hit after hit. Uh, this guy is incredible, I mean, when you think of you really got me, dedicated follower of fashion, Waterloo Sunset, you know, on and on and on Just uh, he's, he's just terrific, interesting story about Lola, I don't know if you want me to tell you that yeah, please. That, uh, that song came um, from an idea Ray Davies had when his manager at that time told him that he'd gone into a bar and gotten drunk the night before, and picked up who he thought was the woman. The man had a good laugh over this, and Ray Davies sat down and penned Lola.
0: Oh, wow. So I thought that was a interesting story. A lot of his lyrical content, Ray's lyrical content, is, uh, I find, very literary. I mean, there's a re- if he wasn't a songwriter, he probably would have been a great novelist. You know, these, these little stories he...
1: Absolutely, a poet, a novelist, uh, very intelligent, very intelligent guy. And and I was thrilled when he married uh, when he married Chrissy Hind. I just thought that's fantastic.
0: What a great pair, right?
1: Eh? no kid, no kid. I've seen him with his, own. his latest love is, is is very nice looking lady as well. But Chrissy Hind was, I mean, I just went well. That's great pairing, Ray Davies and Chrissy Hind, Fantastic, and of okay. course, he covered a, a few of his songs. Apparently,
0: how would you just to sort of sum up our chat about the Kinks? How do the Kinks? Match up to the essence of cool. What is it about them that is supremely cool? The fact that
1: they're uh, again, we're so prolific. The fact that again, as you mentioned, Ray Davies, if he hadn't been a rock star, would have been a writer. I mean, I mean that's cool. The fact that somebody actually can dream up something has always been cool to me. So that's yeah. that's terrific. And, and, and as i say, his longevity, um, how prolific he is. Uh, intelligence, uh, creativity I mean, on and on and on that, that's the essence of cool to me
0: On that note, we're going to take a, a little break and when we come back, we're going to talk about somebody else that I really admire Frank Zappa We'll be right back <music> Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on supportive listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back with Jerry Young. Uh, of current records management also uh, author of the book Pop Goes the Weasel Rock and Roll Off the Record and if you haven't read it yet I uh, highly recommend you pick it up because it's r- super entertaining um w- want to talk about uh, your next artist which is Frank Zappa and uh, gosh I I, I- I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't like Frank, at least some of what Frank has done. Uh, such a prolific uh, writer and in so many genres too, not just not just rock, but uh, classical as well. He was a brilliant uh, classical composer. Um, before you met Frank, how wh- what did you know about him? Were you a fan? What albums were you listening to?
1: It's very interesting, Bernard. I really didn't give Frank Zappa much... Second thought, really, uh, until I met him. Uh, Mm -hmm. During the late 60s when I was in school or early 70s when I was going to school, you know, my my college friends we would sit around basement apartments and Zappa would come on once in a while, the New Mothers of Invention song or whatever. Somebody would have a record or whatever. So I I knew about him, obviously, uh, you know, from the 60s and and late 60s uh, listening to him. But I never really was a fan. Um, 10 years later or ten, yeah, at least 10 years later, 10 years later 1978 79 I'm working for Polygram Records in Toronto and uh, one of the artists on our label at that point is Frank Zappa
0: wow.
1: and he comes out with a new album uh, my first uh, with Polygram my first year with Polygram at that time or second year with Polygram at that time and he came out with the album Sheep Your Booty it was a double album of live performances. Right. So because this was an album I'd be promoting and representing and somebody I'd be meeting and having to squire around Toronto, I decided to take a good listen to Sheep Your Booty, which was Frank in an Arabian headdress on the front cover. Right. Nevertheless, it's Sheep Your Booty. Uh, at any rate, it was a, a nod to the disco era or a nod against the disco era or whatever.
0: Right.
1: At any rate, um, I I listened to the two albums and I thought, gee, you know, I may not think much of this stuff in terms of it's not top ten material, but gosh, it's interesting. Yeah. And he seems like he's really wild. He really let me read a bit more about this guy. So I started to read a bit about him and and realized that, you know, the guy was born in Baltimore, went out to LA, started this group called the Mothers of Invention and Sixty-three, um, and and was putting out about two albums a year. Yeah, and I went, what the hell? So I started. I really sort of started appreciating, you know, again how prolific this guy was and how talented he was. And I, I realized he was not only a composer, not only a conductor of orchestras, and that and that the, and some of the great composers like Stravinsky and all the rest of, of the time. Those were his heroes. Those were the people he listened to. So this this guy was quite intelligent. There's no question about that. And he played about three or four instruments. So uh, apart from all this stuff, I start you know I got ready to meet him, etc. And we then, and I heard you know take care of Frank, make sure there's no problems, etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera. The band's coming in. And there was Terry Bozio from Missing Persons on drums and all the rest of it. And, and Terry Bozio, is a funny story, Terry Bozio's girlfriend that, that month he came into Toronto, Terry Bozio's girlfriend was in the, the centerfold of Penthouse Magazine. Oh, my. So, so Frank Frank didn't associate with the people in the band usually. But during, during the tour, they occasionally to get Terry pissed off, would pull out a copy of Penthouse and start drooling over it in the dressing room. <laughs> and, of course, of Terry, and, of course, fistfights would occasionally break out. <laughs> but nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, we got ready to meet Frank, and, of course, the situation was that uh, there'd be uh, one limo to take the band to their hotel from the airport, and there'd be another limo for Frank and his bodyguard. Oh, wow. So, so that's what happened. So we picked Frank up and said hello to the band in, in, the, in the in the arrival area and showed them to their limo and they all got in, three of them, and took off downtown. And Frank, uh, Jean-Brie Heimrath, who was working with me at Polygram at the time and uh, Smothers, his bodyguard, got into the other limo and proceeded to head downtown and Drop them off and get ready to do our two days of promotion before a show at Maple Leaf Gardens. A couple of days later,
0: right.
1: so that's fine. The next day, we picked them up and started do the touring around in the limo and start doing touring all around Toronto and going up to CFNY, out in the west end of Toronto, and down to Chum and over to CFTR and or to CK. I mean, everywhere, going, going and seeing the men. So uh, we did did that normal stuff, and during during the conversation, uh, uh, you know, and the limo and the rest of it, uh, we we consistently, uh, you know, Frank would talk about his his movie, 200 Motels, that he was trying to finish at that point. So anyway, Frank started talking about his movie, 200 Motels, uh, that he hadn't finished, and and said, do you think, uh, Jerry, uh, you know, you worked in television a few years ago, right? And I said, yeah, I worked in television. He said, do you have any friends in the TV business? I said, sure, I still have a lot of friends in the TV business. He says, well, do you think you can find me some money so I can finish the movie? Oh, I said, wow. I thought this was sort of weird, considering that, you know, Frank Zappa, I mean, couldn't he find the money to finish a movie? Yeah, right. So I thought to myself, well, let me uh, let me ask. Let me, let me check. Brown. So I asked a few of my friends who, you know, might know people who had the money and none of them really were that interested in touching it for some reason. I know that I would have been if I had the money, but I didn't have the money, so it wasn't wasn't my call. Nevertheless, Frank eventually found the money later that year and um, did did finish his movie. Of course, it was uh, apparently a pretty off the wall movie of Frank and the band on tour, and winding up in this town called Centerville, and the rest of it. So I mean, it's a pretty odd movie, but nevertheless, it was Frank's idea. So I felt it probably worth probably worth investigating. Yeah. At any rate, Frank was a a, a terrific guy, uh, and. He didn't, as I say, he didn't associate with the band much except to pull a prank on them when we were out on tour and talking uh, and going around visiting radio stations, etc. Uh, he'd go in and he got he got really pissed off at Chum FM. I think it was because one of their disc jockeys put on the wrong cut uh, when they were doing the interview. So... Frank got really pissed off, and when well, he walked out of the interview after about ten minutes, said, "Well, you know, I think that's about it. Uh, okay, I'll see you later." I was a bit surprised. We got back in the limo, and he went out to CFNY, which was our next interview and in a rival radio station, and trashed chum. totally. <laughs> and in the concert at Maple Leaf Gardens totally so you know beware of those.
0: you had said something in the book that um, about chum taping over some of the uh, selections on his album that they weren't allowed to play or something
1: yeah frank, frank that, that was another thing the, the whole situation at chum really upset not only the dj but there was some some of his albums they had tape. That were They weren't allowed to play certain cuts off his albums uh, to show, uh, you know, because they, they were, uh, what, graphic material or something? Because right. Frank would use language, I guess, that you couldn't put on the air. And so he saw that actually physically on the album. And, of course, you know, totally said, what the fuck is this? And so they told him what it was. And he was, you know, totally pissed off. Nothing to do with Chum FM from then on. This guy's put out 62 albums. Yeah, in, 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 he died at fifty-three in nineteen ninety-three. Yeah, he put out sixty-two albums in thirty years.
0: Incredible, just incredible. Um, I had heard that uh, Frank could be known for being rather ornery, you know, in interviews and and with certain people. But uh, you didn't. Yeah. Uh, other than the incident with Chum FM, he seemed to be a pretty cool guy to you. Very-
1: very, 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 nice. And uh, even, even one uh, another situation I remember. After uh, we'd finished uh, the, you know, taking him around to all the radio stations for the two days, and we got to know each other fairly well, and his bodyguard Smothers, we were in the dressing room before his show at Maple Leaf Gardens, and Tim Harold, um, president of Polygram, uh, walked in. Oh. And uh, we introduced him. Frank and, uh, you know, Tim had come from Montreal to see Frank and because he wasn't playing any other shows in Canada. Uh, so Tim came from Montreal and uh, we introduced him and uh, Tim said all, all the right things and everything was fine. And uh, Frank, of course, uh, didn't drink or didn't smoke and there was beer and stuff, so I was having a beer. But I remember uh, somebody said, okay, we, we got to have a picture. And so John marie and I stood there beside, well, Frank was sitting down and Tim was to the uh, left of Frank, and uh, John marie was uh, standing over Frank, and I was to the right. And they said, okay, everybody, say cheese. And Frank put up his middle finger, <laughs> so that is the shot. <laughs> there is Frank, his middle finger up, staring straight into the camera with all these recording people standing around. Quite fitting.
0: <laughs> I'm looking at that picture right now in your book, and uh, he's he's got the he's showing the middle finger, and he's he's got this devilish grin on his face. It's priceless. You got it. that That's him. That's him in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Uh, I mean, he's as we said at the beginning. And you said, I mean, he's sixty-plus albums uh, in his over his career, and so much of it—not just rock, but classical too—and um, incredible works. What do you think he'll be remembered most for?
1: Again, I think Frank will be remembered for not only how prolific he was—sixty-two albums—but how creative he was. I mean, the Mahu Visional Orchestra, for the Mothers of Invention. Uh, Valley Girl, his daughter Moon Zappa has a, has a hit with Valley Girl, which is one of his songs. I mean, and it was up for a Grammy. Yeah. I mean, who, who would have thought Valley Girl when it was up for a, a yeah. Best Vocal in a Grammy? Frank Zappa. I now mean, he yeah. didn't win, but it was an achievement. <laughs>
0: I, well, I started listening to Frank in the early 70s, I guess around 73, and I just noticed, uh, looking on the Wikipedia page, that the album that I started listening to was his 17th. He'd put out 17 yeah. albums before I'd ever heard an, a song by him.
1: <laughs> and, and, and I started in 1969 when I first heard him, so, so I imagine he'd probably put out 10 albums by then.
0: Yeah, yeah, Amazing um i'm going to wrap that up for our conversation about frank um and i want to jump into a little game i like to play called cool or not cool and uh, so i'm going to read a, a list of uh, artists i'll list them individually and uh, you get to tell me whether they're cool or not And if you want to back it up yeah. with a little bit of commentary please go ahead and the difference this time um is that you've met each and every one of the people i'm going to mention here which is very cool. Um, so let's start off with Johnny Winter. Cool or not cool?
1: Cool and not cool. Um, I say that because I say that he he, he was a one of a, a kind guitarist. Very cool. Uncool. He was a heroin addict, and that destroyed his career. You know, I, he could have been he could have been so much greater. But as I as I say, he he was a, he was an amazing guitarist.
0: Yeah, I saw him in 1975 at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. A little bit past his prime, I guess he was more in his prime in the late 60s, early 70s. But in 75, he still had it. He was just amazing.
1: He, he I, I'm surprised he went on as long as he did, to be honest with you. Because, as I say, he had. To, I mean, he was such sort of a foul person when I met him that uh, you know he he was toxic, and, and I couldn't understand. Frankly, how long this guy could continue, but he continued quite a long
0: time. Yeah, you tell the story of the him ranting over uh, somebody eating mm-hmm. his grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, he, he went nuts yeah. and uh, t- in front of me the first time I met him, and yelled at all his bandmates and went into their washroom and did heroin.
0: Oh wow! Um, all right, let's move on to the next one, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer.
1: This man. Even though he told me to go take a walk, I think he is one of the coolest guys. (laughs) I think he's one of the coolest guys around. Because anybody who says to you, give me $5,000 cash and I'll sit down and talk, (laughs) if that's his rule, I like that man. (laughs) And that's what he said to me. He said, I'll take a meeting if you give me 5,000 cash. So there was no meeting.
0: If li- if listeners want to read more about that story, you got to pick up Jerry's book. Pop goes the weasel, rock and roll off the record. He is all of the people we're talking about today. He has uh, uh, referred to and has anecdotes about in the book. So please do pick it up. All right, moving on. Bob Geldof, cool or not cool? Bob, Bob Geldof, very
1: cool. Uh, no question about it. Um, Bob Bob was a terrific guy. He came to Toronto two or three times uh, while I was at PolyGram. And uh, we got along famously. As a matter of fact, I even signed one of his guitar players, Jerry Cott, to a deal with Current Records, and we put out a solo EP in 1984. That's right. Um, nevertheless, uh, but in terms of Bob Gelda, he's a, just a terrific guy, um, uh, and, you know, always... Always cool to me introducing uh, promo people, radio people, the TV people and uh, to him, etc. Uh, he'd do any interviews you asked of him. He worked really hard. He was a smart guy. Again, he wasn't a, somebody I paid much attention to until the song I Don't Like Mondays, right. which, of course, went to number one in North America um, and was a... a it was just a fantastic, fantastic song. And uh, the album, Fine Art of Surfing, it came out of. was a terrific album. Um, now, Bob was, a, Bob was a super guy. And, and I, I was really disappointed years later when he uh, started his big uh, charity drive for Ethiopia. Right. And We Are the World and the rest of it. Uh, he gave all this money away, and he was accused of giving it away to a dictator in Ethiopia. Oh. And uh, he, went, he, he was put under a lot of heat for that, and, um, you know, that he hadn't done due diligence or whatever, uh, and he was running the charity, and, uh, you know, I think the guy honestly meant to do well. He might have made some mistakes, but he got really fried for trying to do something good.
0: Yeah, that's a shame, um, because uh, to me, he is a true humanitarian, a uh, brilliant no question. man. And, uh... No question about it. Terrific guy. Okay, next one. Kiss.
1: Uh, uncool. Yeah, well, I you know, I, I think uh, their shtick is all too obvious. Um, you know, all he cares about, he's like Donald Trump. All he cares about is making money. He's moving out of California even now because, he's got, because he can be taxed too much. Yeah, this is Simmons. I mean, uh, you know, he, he, he was a pain in the ass uh, uh, when he came into Toronto, uh, Backstage, we had contest winners from Montreal flown in. They were supposed to meet him, supposed to meet him backstage. Of course, um, you know, we tried to get in, John marie and myself, uh, at Polygram, we tried to, you know, as, you, as usual, tried to go in and wish the band well before their, their show. Of course, we weren't allowed in the dressing room because they are putting on their makeup and we weren't allowed to see them without their makeup. So that was fine. We, we were kept cooling our heels for 20 or 25 minutes outside. And the, with all the contest winners standing around. Um, eventually, when he, whenever he did came, come out, uh, the band came out, uh, you know, they were sort of very gruff with, uh, okay, you got your photo? Okay, see ya. You know, but, you know, wow. they gave a hell of a show. I mean, the, the show was fantastic. I mean, here's, I'd never seen Kiss Before live. And, uh, you know, it was something new to me to see suddenly Gene Simmons playing his guitar being carried up to the ceiling by a crane. And I'm thinking, what the hell? This is something else. This is quite some performance. So their show, I'd give a 10 to. The rest of them, their personality and their shtick, no, I, I, don't, I think I'm cool.
0: I think we may be jumping from bad to worse here because my next uh, artist <laughs> is Robert Fripp.
1: Oh, boy, uncool. Uh, this guy really thinks a lot of himself. I suppose if you started King Crimson, you might think a lot of yourself. But nevertheless, um, I he Robert, had, again, it was about the second or third time we had dealt with Robert at Polygram, and, uh, you know, he was coming in Toronto again, and uh, I remember we had three or four shows uh, that week, and so we were really hooked up with sort of taking care of people and running around and making sure we are available for them and doing their interviews and all the rest of it. And so I said to Robert through his agency or his manager, uh, through a, a, a telex or a phone call at that time, um, how about uh, we have a limo pick up Robert, and I don't pick him up. He'll be picked up by a limo and taken to the hotel because he's coming in on a flight from New York, at five o'clock on a Friday, oh and that isn't a good time for us to be trying to get back down. And I think I, I, I think I was talking to Robert directly because it seared in my mind his words in an English accent saying, "Oh, I'd re- much rather go in your car, Jerry." And so I tro- I drove to the airport no matter how busy I was at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And we had, as I say, other shows that week that we had to do and more that weekend. And he was performing at a, a smallish venue in Toronto, the Bath- Bathurst Street Theater. And so uh, it wasn't the major priority that week. But nevertheless, we had to treat him like a star, which he was. So we're driving downtown. And as we're driving downtown and we're stuck on the traffic. I mean, it's two hours and I'm stuck on the Gardner Expressway And it's raining. And it's about seven o'clock now, and so he looks at me, and I, I, I'm showing obviously my displeasure, but not saying anything. And, and he sort of says, "Now, isn't this much more lovely, Jerry, than a limo?" And I, and I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, the other thing was uh, we went up. Uh, he he appeared on stage the next night at the Bathroom Street Theater. It was a you know a fairly low key crowd, of both. 600 people, five, 600 people. Um, he, it was a very strange show, probably the oddest show I'd ever seen. It was a solo tour. He came out on stage, and he played a guitar solo for, I guess, 45 minutes or an hour, whatever the writer said, and then gave a fast sort of chord. There's no singing, by the way. It was all guitar. And and the album we were pushing was called Preppertronics.
0: Okay, I remember it.
1: And so it was all guitar, no vocal, no anything, nobody else, just him and the electric guitar. His last his last song, he he, you know strum a, a, a major chord on the guitar and left it ringing in the stand on stage with a light on the guitar. He then walked off, and people just stood, you know, sat there staring. At this buzzing guitar for five minutes when finally the lights went off, and that was the end of the show. And you know, I didn't know it was the end of the show. I went, I guess it's is the end of the show. The crowd, I guess the same thing. So they started leaving and applause sort of scattered applause, and everybody started leaving. And I caught up with Robert afterwards and Bobby Gale, who's now deceased, but was a was a radio jock at the time for Q107. He was a big Fripp fan, and he wanted a picture and was begging me for a picture with Robert Fripp. And so I pulled Bobby backstage with Robert and said, you know, this is... So we sat down on a bench that was nearby, and he gave a look into the camera. I gave a look into the camera, and Bobby gave a seared look into the camera, and that was the one picture. And he took the limo home or back to his hotel, and that was the last I saw or heard of Robert Fripp. Uncool.
0: Uh, Let's try to finish on an up uh, on an upswing here. Um, Andy Partridge and XTC.
1: Oh boy! Now again, one of my favorites, Andy Partridge in particular, and Colin Molden. um, uh, They came to draw again for uh, three or four times, and the album uh, that I I was most involved in was Drums and Wires, which of course had the number one hit "Making Plans" for Nigel, and. I'll tell you, uh, you would expect when they when a band comes to town and they got a number one record, that you know, that there's no there's no holding them back. I mean, this is, they're going to be absolutely crazy and, frankly, not very familiar or whatever. And I had I had dealt with them before, uh, before Drums and Wires and and. Uh, you know, we'd gotten along famously then. And when the drums and wires hit, I was never, you know, so pleased with them. And, of course, they came to town and uh, uh, played Toronto, played The Edge, played the El Combo. They came back another time and they played Kitchener-Waterloo Theatre or something, and I drove them, or Kitchener-Waterloo, excuse me, University of Waterloo, and I drove them there and we had a nice drive home in a snowstorm. But they were just terrific guys. And uh, uh, strangely enough, about uh, two years ago, I see that Colin Moulding has reformed a, a, another band uh, by himself with another guy. And um, I'm asked to review the album by Spill Magazine. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, so I interviewed Colin's, Colin's uh, new, uh, new band, a new group, and their new album, and uh, I didn't find it particularly great, but I sort of gave it a 7 or 8 based on the fact of our old friendship, and that was about it.
0: Have you seen the documentary on XTC called This Is Pop? I have not seen the documentary. I'd love to see it. Yeah, it's fascinating. And Andy Partridge, I know he's uh, had had his issues uh, and I know he sort of stopped the band from touring and there was um, a little dissension among the ranks uh, because of that. But uh, they just seem to crank out great album after great album after great album. And, you know, among my group of friends, uh, they are probably, you know, one of the the top three artists uh, of all time so just
1: just terrific and 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 what i was so shocked at bernard was when i was driving home in that snowstorm we had a long chat of course for an hour an hour and a half and um i was talking we were exchanging phone numbers or something i said oh what's your number i'll give you a call or something he said oh i don't have a phone and i said you don't have a phone what why don't you have a phone and he said, "Oh, I have to drive down to my manager's office whenever there's a phone call, or I'm doing an interview, because we don't have the money to afford a phone." Oh my! I thought to myself, "He can't. He doesn't have the money to afford a phone, and he's got a top ten record around the world." Amazing! What the hell's going on here? So, it, you know, it sort of taught me something about uh, how management works and. Uh, and how the record company works in terms of paying your royalties. I just assumed before that point that these guys had money whenever they wanted, if they had a hit.
0: You would you would have thought. <laughs> I think they're doing yeah. okay now. Um, it looks like uh, Andy specifically seems to be faring quite he got, well. In-
1: he, got a, he got a settlement from Virgin. He had Virgin audited, and he got a settlement. I
0: think it was two or $300,000. On that note, uh, Jerry, I want to thank you so much for your time and the and the wonderful stories. Absolutely delightful. Uh, I knew this was going to be a fun interview, and uh, you you haven't let me down. <laughs> this has been great. I I'm glad
1: to yeah. hear that, Bernard.
0: Yeah. Uh, just to let listeners know again. Uh, Please uh, look for Pop Goes the Weasel, Rock and Roll Off the Record by Jerry Young. Just a series of fascinating stories of uh, Jerry's life uh, in the music business and uh, really, really interesting. Again, Jerry, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure, Bernard. It's been
0: an honor. Thanks to Jerry for an intriguing conversation. To read more about his time as a promoter and music exec, do check out his book, Pop Goes the Weasel, Rock and Roll Off the Record. He includes stories about everyone from Peter Gabriel and 10CC to Daniel Lenoir, Robert Fripp, and XTC. Do check it out. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying stay safe and please support independent music.